sent forth his word and healed them and saved them from the grave. Please be seated. So we're talking about snakes this morning. That's right, snakes. Hear that little nervous little chuckle out there. Snakes. I thought, yep, we're going to put snakes on the table this morning. And I thought, nope, this is not West Virginia. We are not opening up a bag of snakes this morning. The fellows and I were, were talking this morning about March Madness. And I realized this week when I was writing this sermon, there's not one basketball team in the tournament. Indeed, there is only one basketball team in all of college sports that I know of that is named after a snake. Do you know which college it was? Which one? No, it's Texas A&M. Oh, no, Florida. Florida A&M, um, the rattlesnakes. There's only one team in, in, in professional sports that I know that's named after a snake. Yeah, from a book. The Diamondbacks, right? <laughs> the Arizona Diamondbacks. The only professional team that I know of named after a snake. The Arizona Diamondbacks. And they're really named after a baseball field, right? Not really a snake. So what is there about snakes? We don't like them, do we? You know, there was a Harris poll that was taken. 35% um, of all people, I guess just Americans, but 35% of all people polled expressed the opinion that they did not like snakes. Interestingly enough, 45% were women, of the women expressed a dislike for snakes, and 22% of men presented a dislike for snakes, and it's positive proof for me that women are indeed smarter than men. Because <laughs> I don't like them very much either. So what's the deal? What, what's the big thing about snakes in this morning's reading? The first reading, the one that we had from the book of Numbers, is really, that's the, that's the sort of focal point of this whole reading, is, is this, this incident with snakes with many snakes and then with this one snake. And I would like to propose to you this morning that there can be an alternate reading than the one that we usually assume that has to do with these snakes. But first we have to go back a little bit in, in this, this life of the Israelites as they are moving from Egypt out of bondage, moving into the promised land. This is, this is in their journey, this is a moment when they have continue to grumble again and again and again about the process. There's no water. Remember, not that long ago, there was the waters at Mirabah where, where Moses had to strike the rock with a stick for water to come out. They grumbled about food. They grumbled about how much, how too long, it was taking too long. They didn't know where they were going. Their feet hurt. Their tents had holes in them now. They were just grumbling all the time. Now, just before this passage, Aaron, who was one of their co-leaders, has died. Now immediately after the understanding that, Mo that Aaron, I'm sorry, Aaron has died, and Aaron is gone now, and the first thing that they do is they grumble again about the food and the water. And what's significant about this is they're grumbling about the food that they proclaimed as a miracle just a few, what, what months or years before. Because that food that they detested, of course, you know how it's settled, it's, it's, it's pulled out a special? That's the manna. They've now been at this so long that the food that they proclaimed a miracle from God is now seen as detestable. 
And that detestable food that you gave us, God, that wonderful miracle, now no longer is a wonderful miracle, now we detest it. Now, I would put to you that that's human nature. That's the way we are as people. That's what moves us forward. I mean, don't you remember when you were perfectly happy in college in that apartment with five other students and it was always a mess and you woke up one day and thought, I gotta get out of here. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I don't belong in this place anymore. Or, or remember when you woke up one morning and you thought, there's not a sound in, in, this, in this apartment but me, I need a puppy. I mean, we, we continually get to that place of discouragement and disappointment and even dis-ease that moves us into that next place. Indeed, what, what propels us forward is discomfort. We only make changes in our lives when we are so uncomfortable with where, the lives are, or where our lives are right now. Sometimes that, that discomfort that moves us to the next place is beneficial. It's good for us and it's good for those around us. Sometimes those, those feelings of discomfort can be very damaging and negative. Like war, for instance. Like being so uncomfortable or discomforted or coveting. The last week we talked about the Ten Commandments. Coveting what somebody else has. We want it so badly that it moves us to make changes that are, that are negative or changes that are harmful. Changes that are dangerous. But we're, we're always looking for, we're always feeling that sense of, of where we are isn't quite comfortable isn't quite where we need to be, isn't quite where we think we're going, isn't quite right. And that is the human condition. Now call it what you will. Traditionalists still today and, and others that have gone before for two millennium have called it original sin. I don't buy that language anymore. But that, that, that concept of not being where we want to be, not being in an intimate relationship with God, Fearing death, which is the fear of the ultimate separation from God, because we all have that fear, that basic fear, that, that we will leave this world and go to not a place where God is, but a place where God is not. That sets up this basic sense of dis-ease that all humanity shares. The anthropologists will tell us, the, the, the neuroscientists will tell us, that it was an understanding of that that moved us into that the, where our species is as human beings. Consciousness brought with it that sense of dis-ease because we know we will die and that fear is that we will be disconnected from one another and from a God who yearns to be in contact with us. So where I'm going with this is, is that the first part of, of this story, the grumbling of the people for the writer is really a given. That's where the people of Israel are. But the focal point of this story is what God has Moses do when Moses fashions this, this copper snake and puts it on a pole and holds it up in front of the people and in viewing, in observing, in contact with that image on the pole, people are healed. Healed. That's the image that, that the writer wants us to see. Not the people being bitten. We all are snake-bit people, like I just said. But it's the image of being healed. The purpose of this story is that God provides that which is necessary, 
the agent which is, which is necessary for us to be healed. It's not about sin. It's not about we fall short. It's about God provides for us that which gives us the hope of being healed. It's that funny paradox that, that understanding that sense of, of our suffering as human bring, beings brings us to a new realization that God desires to be in relationship with us, to heal us of that sense of alienation. And this is not my idea. This idea goes way back. I was, I was doing some research this week and, and reading one of my favorite um, theologians from the 20th century, the 20th century, um, Abraham Heschel, a Jewish scholar. And one of the translators of, of some of Heschel's works writes this, and Heschel was writing about an 11th century rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, very famous Jewish rabbi in the 11th century. And this is what the translator says about Heschel's understanding of Akiva. This attitude brought to our attention in these chapters it does not dispute the idea that suffering may be connected with sin. It does not dispute that idea. But it considers the primary purpose to be elsewhere. Its objective is not so much purification from sin as it is the goal of drawing human beings closer to God. The story we read this morning, the object is not about sin and, 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 and moving away from God or purification. It's about drawing human beings closer to God. Much more than a means of atonement, afflictions can actually create a bond with God. That's the paradox. That is why, in this point of view, afflictions are spoken of as having advantages. This is what Akiva says. Having afflictions in life, suffering in life, can give us advantages. How? Because the Torah itself is said to be acquired only through affliction. Consistent with this attitude, God is depicted as vulnerable, empathetic, and seeking solidarity. This is a vulnerable God that's seeking relationship with humanity. Not some lofty God that, that's, that's angry and throwing thunderbolts and proclaiming judgment. This is a God who's looking for relationship. Remember, this is 11th century Jew that wrote this. Th thus, the acceptance of suffering in this view, is not the resigned and muted acceptance of Job, but rather the more positive and uplifting acceptance born of that solidarity and of the exhilaration of sharing in God's experience. The uplifting and the sharing in the experience, the exhilaration of being invited into this new relationship with God. And, and, and that it comes through an understanding that we as human beings are fallen, in, the, in, in that sense that we are faulted and that we need to be sought out for by God, in that sense, in that feeling then, this is all about healing that God provides rather than about any sort of a punitive judgment. Now, two weeks ago, I, I expressed to you the, the, the concept that the cross is really about revolution, liberation, that God was doing something liberating through the death of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. And many of you have commented on how, what a powerful idea that that is. The cross is not about, about a wrathful God punishing people, demanding a blood sacrifice, 
in order to be at peace, which is really an ancient concept, well before Christianity, that there is the possibility of seeing the cross as an agent of liberation. Liberation from, from, from the Roman Empire that was constricting the people of God and a liberation from the fear of death. Now, I would like for to express to you the possibility that the cross is really a symbol of healing. That the purpose Jesus hanging on the cross is to show that God has a healing, now salvific, not, not some future salvation idea, but that this current in this life, wholeness, being healed, that the cross is really a symbol of God's desire to be in relationship with us through the healing, that lifting up, that John talks about the same thing. The first thing that Jesus talks about in this reading from John is, is that like Moses lifting up the serpent, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Not for punishment, not to make us understand ourselves as being debased and in some way eternally sinful, but that we are loved by God so much that God desires healing in the human species. Not death, but life. But life. Come up here, gentlemen. I need your help. Pass these out. I want you to see something that I found on the internet this week. You'll do those guys. And you go down this way here, Dashel. Just hand it to the front ones, to the first one here. Here, pass these out. I want these back. That's why I'm passing them out. Well, I ran out of money this week, and the things are tight, and... <laughs> Give me a couple for the clergy. Thank you. This is a piece of art that was done by a man named Giovanni Fontini. This statue is at, is at the, the, the front of a Franciscan monastery on Mount Nebo in Israel. Nebo is the place where legend says Moses lifted up the cross. Now this, this is this artist's understanding of just what we're talking about. You can see that the serpent is wrapped around the cross. And, and it looks like maybe the head of the serpent. Okay, thank you. That, that, that the head of the serpent may even be like the head of Jesus. What else do you, what else do you observe in this, in this statue? And we have plenty. You guys can keep these. What else do you see in, in, the, uh, in this statue? What does this remind you of? I can't hear you. The, Cadu the caduceus, right? Right? And what is that a symbol of? Healing. See? This is a universal symbol of healing. I'm not sure Fontoni wanted it to be that, but it certainly is. This is sort of a, a visual representation of what I'm talking about. That Jesus on the cross is really about healing the human soul. Not about some sort of a, of, a, of a necessary blood sacrifice. But that came way late in Christianity. But that's, that that's 
to my mind now, a misconception that we have been laboring under for a long time. It's really about wholeness. It's really about God's desire to heal. And Jesus' understanding of that is what, is what propelled him, compelled him to climb upon that cross. And of course, that makes no sense until we experience the resurrection. But the resurrection makes no sense until we realize that Jesus, that Jesus was God's message to us that sanctifies suffering in a way. Right? There, there is this understanding that we, as human beings, will suffer. We do suffer. But it is in some way a sanctification of that fact. And that we are in no way responsible for that fact. We, as a species, did not do something so cataclysmic, so catastrophic, that we had to be, to be redeemed, it had to be paid for, this 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 exchange of economy had to happen by sacrificing the Son of God. Now that we sin, you know, there's no doubt. I mean, that's part of what we're talking about too, right? We make mistakes. We are indeed part of a broken creation. And we continue to be part of that broken creation all the time. But we don't need to see ourselves as wallowing in that broken creation. We see ourselves as being invited out of that brokenness by a God who wants to heal us, who is constantly calling us to that place of renewal. That this is a God who, who, who wants us to understand that, that this God yearns for that relationship, as Akiva says, a vulnerable, searching God who's looking for the confidence and the hopefulness in a people that can embrace that God in this kind of love. We start from a really sort of a, of a shaky foundation to begin with because we have this anxiety about the future. And we overlay on top of that this, 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 this accruing of, of all of, of this sort of negative thought that we've had over the past couple of centuries, and now we're stuck. But that which has held us in this place, I would suggest to you this morning, is the very thing that can liberate us, can free us, can give us that sense of, of what the real relationship with God, what a real relationship with God is all about. And then there's a freedom in that. There's a confidence in that. There's an ability in that to begin to see ourselves as vital players, no longer pawns in, the, in, in some, some sort of a heavenly game, but now co-creators in a new vision that we too are responsible for who we are and where we're going and what we make of this world and of our lives. <coughs> and that we have a companionable God who wants us to go there with this God, him or her or however you define this. This is an invitation. The cross is an invitation to experience a God who loves, continually and totally loves. It's hard to shed the other stuff. You know, it's, it's kind of comfortable to feel like, oh, nothing I can do about this. Oh, I'm just a bad human being, and not much I can do, and 
So we'll have to have to leave it where it is. Now we have responsibility to co-create. But the hope and the joy in that possibility is unlimited. Unlimited. And it's time for us, as a species, to acknowledge and accept that responsibility. Co-creator. Bringing this world into a new place. The new Jerusalem. As the book of Revelation talks about. The new place. So, I have homework for you. You know, now that, I've, now that I've given you a text, I have homework for you. And the homework for you is between now and Good Friday to think about, about those things that you fear personally, those things that you fear, and what idols you have maybe built around that. That, that, this, that this snake is, is, is reminiscent of, of a well before even, even the Israelites, you know, back to Egyptian days. That, that this image could be seen as an idol. What idols have we created to, to contend with the fears that we have? And how can we see the true nature of God's healing power to defeat those idols that are in our lives? And they're always created by fear. Idols are always created by fear and separation. We all have them. What's yours? And how does this vision how does an understanding of a God open and accepting and loving, even in suffering, how does that counteract the power of the idols? And then Good Friday, we will hold that up together, you know, silently hold that up together and move into Easter Sunday. You with me on that? Okay. That which God holds up, God loves. That which God elevates, God is in relationship with. And my brothers and sisters, you are held up by a loving God.